This all started in museums and galleries. Now it's in classrooms, in country towns. This should not be here. It's a human being in a box. This is the stuff of empires. There is a great betrayal. We're not slaves, we're African. It's the stuff the British stole. I just don't believe that. It just does not stand up. From ABC Australia and CBC Podcasts, six brand new podcast episodes for free worldwide, available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. That's the sound of the North Atlantic right whale. It is one of thousands of migratory species the United Nations says is at greater risk than ever. A new report by a UN conservation group found more than one in five species it is tracking are threatened with extinction. The report blames habitat loss, overexploitation, pollution and climate change. In Canada, there's lots of work happening to reverse that trend. Delphine Dorette Moren is a scientist with the Canadian Whale Institute. She joins me from Halifax. Good morning. Morning. What is the state of North Atlantic right whales? Well, um, the latest report uh, says that there's the population estimate is at about 360 individuals left. Not promising numbers and and not many females, I I understand, reproductive females. Yeah, there's less than 70 reproductive females. And so once we get, you know, once we lose those 70 reproductive females, the population is effectively extinct. So So what are the, the, the big threats facing right whales right now? There's two main mortality causes. There's ship strikes and entanglements in fishing gear, so human activities. And 2017, it was a really bad year for right whales. Uh, There was a record number of of right whale deaths. What's changed since then to protect the species? Yeah, 2017 was a rough year. Uh, 15 dead whales, 12 in Canada, 2019, another nine in Canada. Um, And that encompasses like basically 20% of the population is in this unusual mortality event. And since 2017, there has been unprecedented efforts in Canada to try to protect this whale's um, species. And so it includes regulations from the government to um, limit shipping speeds. Um, So there's static and dynamic uh, mandatory and voluntary slowdown zones across um, in different areas in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And then there's also regulations that were implemented to fishing. And that includes dynamic fishery closures. So when a whale is sighted or detected acoustically, there's a an area around the sighting that um, closes the fishery for 15 days. And then if the whale's sighted or detected acoustically again uh, later in that later half of the 15 day, then it, the whole that little area is closed for the season until mid November. When you see uh, photos of the the right whales wrapped up in fishing gear, it is just heartbreaking. How difficult is it to to work with the industry to to get them on board for this? 
It was a lot harder before. I think we've come a long way. The fishing and the shipping industry have had to change a lot of what they do since 2017 to mitigate their risk to whales. And um, that's really promising. And that kind of effort is not really seen anywhere else in the world. And so it hasn't gone unnoticed, but there's still quite a bit of work to be done so that we can prevent the whale from going extinct. And important that Canada is making those efforts. I understand the, the, the right whales are spending more time here in Canada now. Yeah, so before, um, there's there's been a distribution shift. So before, whales were sighted in areas in, in um, the States and Canada as well, in the Bay of Fundy, and those areas were protected. And there was a lot of effort to move the Bay of Fundy shipping lane around Graminan, a critical uh, habitat for the right whale. And then a distribution shift occurred in 2010. In 2015, we started observing right whales in larger numbers in the Gulf St. Lawrence, for Saint, for example. And that area was unprotected. And that's where um, the you know unprecedented mortality of event kind of came from is they moved to an area that wasn't protected and that basically was the perfect storm for them. Well, and, and I mean, the Gulf of St. Lawrence, one of the busiest shipping traffic lanes uh, anywhere in, in, in this hemisphere anyway. I mean, so, so how hopeful are you, uh, Delphine, that, that the species can be saved? I think there's a lot to be said for resiliency in the species. In the in the 90s, the species went down to like 200 and you know below 300 individuals, and it did manage to recover to up to th- uh, 500. And so I think the species does have resiliency that we have seen before. There's also the amazing thing about the right whale research community is that it does span the whole of the eastern seaboard of North America, which is quite rare to see that level of collaboration and data sharing in science. And I think it speaks for the investment that people have on the survival of the species and that we can, you know, work together for a common goal to try to make the world just a little bit better. It sure is encouraging to hear that the scientists are working together to help the right whales. Um, thank you, Delphine, for filling us in on this. Thank you so much. Delphine Dorette Moren is a scientist with the Canadian Whale Institute. It's not just the right whales that are in danger. The UN report highlighted what it calls an unsustainable loss of migratory birds. Habitat loss and pollution are factors. So are window collisions. In Canada, birds flying into windows kills as many as 42 million birds a year. Michael Mazur is the executive director of the Fatal Light Awareness Program, also known as FLAP. Good morning. Good morning. 42 million birds a year. That's a staggering amount of bird deaths. Uh, What is being done to prevent this? We have action now all over uh, North America, quite frankly, uh, looking to address this concern. Primarily, the focus is trying to get municipalities to introduce requirements for all new and existing buildings that meet certain criteria of placing markers on windows to help reduce this leading cause of bird death. Markers on windows. Is it as simple as that, Michael? It is. Uh, You know, in the mind's eye, you put something on a window that covers our ability to see through it. It's not a very aesthetically pleasing thought. But there are markers that meet what science has demonstrated has the proper density, has the proper coverage, the contrast, everything that meets the necessary points for a bird to see a window but does not obscure our ability to see through it. And we're seeing some incredible successes of installations all over the country, actually, 
proving to demonstrate that the numbers are being dropped significantly by the placement of these markers. I'm based here in Ottawa, and, and I know there's discussions going on about a, uh, making it a bird-friendly city. Uh, what would that kind of designation do? Right. So, yeah, under uh, Nature Canada's Bird-Friendly City Program, uh, it definitely helps. It gets people starting to think about birds in their community, uh, different ways that they can help, uh, which would include uh, p- placing markers on windows to reduce bird strikes both at home and at work. Um, and we're seeing this particular program picking up all over the country. Um, Toronto, uh, just very quickly, the first city in the world to introduce mandatory requirements for bird-friendly design. And it's catching on, and this is in part what's happened through the Nature Canada program. They're kind of trying to keep the momentum going. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're seeing incredible success as a result. You mentioned people at home. What, what can people do to their windows on their homes to protect birds? Right. So there are, there are products out there that you can purchase in stores and online that, again, have, they have to meet the criteria of marker uh, density, all those things I had mentioned before. We have to steer away from the traditional bird of prey decal. This is where people go to uh, to try and reduce this concern. And unfortunately, research has proven that this does not do the job. So you just look for a different product that meets bird-friendly criteria for reducing bird strikes. You place those markers on the windows at your home, and you will be making a huge difference, difference just at your own home. So one hawk silhouette won't do it. It does not work, unfortunately. And the best way to look at this is just like us. You have to put a marker on a window for a bird to see. Um, And if the window doesn't have full coverage of markers, it will just slip past those uh, untreated areas. And that's what happens. A bird of prey decal goes on a window. They may see that marker, but they'll just hit the window that's right beside that particular bird prey decal. What we haven't mentioned, what we haven't mentioned is the number one killer of birds, cats. Uh, what, What can be done about that? Yeah, this is another tough one. Uh, you simply have to do your best to keep that cat indoors. Uh, there are far too many cats, both feral cats and domesticated cats, that roam the landscape. And unfortunately, cats, their, their instinct is to prey upon different forms of wildlife, including birds. And birds seem to be one of the most vulnerable to cat attacks. And so the, the more cats that are out there, the more threat there's going to be. Let's, let's take a, a step back and just look at this. I mean, it, it may seem an obvious question, but why, why is it so important to protect migratory birds? Oh, yeah, this is very important for people to understand. Birds that we typically find colliding with windows and being attacked by, by cats, um, they control our insect populations to a vast degree. Uh, they pollinate our plants. They distribute seeds. They provide food for other forms of wildlife. But that aside... Birdwatching. Birdwatching is one of the main, uh, uh, most popular uh, pastimes for people across North America. The industry generates billions of dollars uh, between hotels and restaurants that people visit when they're going to, say, Point Pelee on on Lake Erie, uh, bird books. um, It it just goes on and on. The amount of money that's generated through this particular industry, which helps our economy as well. So all these things combined, it, we really, really do have to start focusing on protecting these birds. But when you talk about saving pollinators, I mean, you're talking about saving us in some ways, not just birds. It, exactly. If, if these birds start to disappear, we will struggle. There is no if, and, or buts about it. And unfortunately, our tendency is to go to chemicals, to go to things that aren't, you know, cause more harm to the planet. We need to protect these birds, and we'll be protecting ourselves. We're talking about Canada here and some of the efforts made in some of the cities across the country. What about other countries? Are, are they taking this as seriously, bird deaths? 
Yes, we're starting to see this happen right across, I mentioned earlier, right across North America. We have municipalities introducing all forms of bird-friendly building requirements. But we're starting to see this trickle into Europe, Asia. We're starting to see all kinds of different other cities around the world starting to recognize the severity of this problem. Because here's the thing about this problem. We all see this happen. The vast majority of people at some point in time have seen a bird just collide with their own window at their home. But that's just one bird in our, in our own experience. But when you think about every home on your street, every home in your neighborhood, in your city, um, we're all experiencing the same thing. The numbers become staggering. And it doesn't matter if you're here in Canada or you're, you're in Germany or Korea, wherever it might be. It's the same experience. So we all have a role to play here. And, and it really is simple. It really is simple to resolve. It, it, you know, that, that one little bird at, at your window, it sure does seem to add up to an awful lot of birds. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for filling us in. Thank you so much. Michael Mazur is the executive director of FLAP, the Fatal Light Awareness Program. He's in Uxbridge, Ontario. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Chris Guglielmo is a professor of biology and the director of the Centre for Animals on the Move at Western University in London. Hello. Yeah, good morning, Duncan. We've talked about whales. uh, We've talked about birds. What are some of the other vulnerable migratory species you're watching in Canada? Well, I think one thing to keep in mind is that migration is is a strategy that's present across all different kinds of animals. So it's it's ubiquitous in nature. Um, animals need to move. And so when we think about biodiversity, we have to think about preserving their ability to move. So um, we've talked a bit about birds and whales, but of course, you've got, you know, huge numbers of fish in the ocean, some which are commercially important, um, other ones that are just in the way and get caught by bycatch. They're all moving around. We've got terrestrial mammals, if you think about like caribou porcupine caribou that need to move back and forth between Alaska and Canada. Uh, About 80% of our bird fauna is migratory. We've got three um, long-distance migratory bats, but even the rest of our bats that we think of as as resident also will move hundreds of kilometers to hibernation sites. And of course, we've got insects, iconic ones like the monarchs, of course, which are in serious trouble. The monarchs aren't doing well um, out here. Monarchs are not doing well. Um, they have they they bounce up and down, and it's and they're hard to survey. But I was just looking at some data, and you know, it's uh, the area they occupy in Mexico is a good indicator of where of how big the population is, and it's gone from about eighteen hectares with about twenty million monarchs each uh, hectare down to about 0.9 hectares this year. So they're very, very uh, seriously in decline. This UN report, I mean, it's, it seems pretty dire, but, but tell me, uh, Chris, I mean, what, what is Canada getting right in trying to protect these migrating species? Yeah, well, you know, um, Canada is, you know, it's not like we're a laggard. This is in, in ecology, we call, uh, this is something we call a wicked problem. You know, it's, 
It's across many countries. It's long distances. So there's no simple solution for most of these species. But, you know, Canada, you know, we have the Migratory Bird Convention Act. That's been, um, you know, we've been in a treaty since 1918 about migratory birds. We have the Species at Risk Act. The DFO regulates migratory fish. Um, we even have, you know, activities happening on monarchs. So it's not like we're laggards, but I think there's just so much more in it that needs to be done. But you mentioned, uh, I mean, animals and birds don't see those those thin red lines that we put on 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 maps. So, so how important is it for countries to work together to, to create these kind of effective policies? Yeah, it's extremely important. I think that's the, the beauty of this UN report, because... Um, it really highlights, you know, at the at the global level what needs to be done. Um, but yeah, it's very, very difficult because you're talking about trying to connect, say, breeding habitats in, in Canada for our birds with their stopover sites along the routes that they go down to Central and South America and then the wintering areas. And we don't even know in, in the full life cycle of the birds where the pinch point is for each species. And we have to identify that in order to protect them. You mentioned habitats, habitat loss, of course, such a, a, a important and, and key issue for so many species. Uh, th- there was that, that global diversity frame, biodiversity framework that was, that was dis- uh, settled in, in 2022 in Montreal to set aside mm-hmm. uh, 30% of world's lands and seas by 2030. Uh, how is Canada doing on that front? Um, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, we're more fortunate than some other countries because we have, you know, uh, a giant landmass and lots of areas we like to think of as pristine, although there's a lot of, uh, resource exploitation going on. But I think generally, you know, the government's made commitment to that. I think they're serious about it. And we, we have large areas of protected habitat. It's just, you could, sometimes you can provide the, the habitat, but then if the animals don't return <laughs> in the in the next spring, you know you're not doing enough. This this may seem a contrarian question, but but why is it important sure. if if we lose uh, a species of rat or or, or a type of salamander? Yeah. yeah, this is a really fundamental idea when we think about biodiversity in general, whether it's mobile or not. This is, you know, I like to think about it as this idea of cogs and wheels that you know if you were taking apart a watch, Aldo Leopold said, you know, you'd save every cog and wheel because you don't really know what it does. But, you know, if you lose one, the mechanism isn't going to work. So if the land is a mechanism, we can't lose those cogs and wheels. And when it comes to migration, I just like to think of it as they also have to be able to move. You know, you don't just make a watch and then look at it, you wind it up and it, it has to move. We've been talking a little bit at a, at a policy level, an international policy level. What can individuals do to help some of these species? Well, I think uh, Michael Mazur really made some great points. If uh, you know, in, in terms of birds, uh, you know, habitat's really important. We can support efforts to protect habitats. Um, we can think about connectivity and making sure that you know we support those efforts to provide linkages between habitats, but. Um, you know, um, I think, you know, cats are a great example. Um, you know, even if we could just bring cats in during the migratory periods, we could have a big impact. It's not necessarily even all year. Spring and fall migration would make a big difference. So there's definitely things we can do. Got about 30 seconds left, Chris. Uh, what's at risk if, if we don't change things if, or, or things don't change fast enough? 
Uh, well, I actually think, you know, our identity as Canadians is at risk because, you know, we we love the snowbirds, you know, we love all these animals. We love fish like salmon coming up the rivers and spawning and caribou moving, you know. And so I think we lose a part of us as a country if we let these species slip away. Chris, thank you so much for, for sharing a little bit about uh, about the importance of, of protecting some of these species. Yeah, thank you very much. Chris Guglielmo is a professor of biology and the director of the Center for Animals on the Move at Western University. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.